Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Tanea Tauber, the Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. In this episode, we explore the state of free expression in the United States, Russia, Zimbabwe, and around the world. Joining the discussion are free speech advocates Gary Kasparov, former world chess champion, political activist, and chairman of the Renew Democracy Initiative, Ivan Mawawire, Zimbabwean pastor, democratic activist, and director of education at the Renew Democracy Initiative, and Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America. Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderates. This program was hosted live at the National Constitution Center, located just steps away from Independence Hall in Philadelphia on June 5th, 2023. It is presented in partnership with the Renew Democracy Initiative and the Center for Constitutional Design at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Welcome to the National Constitution Center and to this evening's in-person presentation of America's Town Hall. It is so wonderful to be back in person, to see all of your faces, and to convene here in this significant spot with a crash of applause for the amazing tablet that is shimmering behind us. Just in the spring, we brought from Washington, D.C. the words of the First Amendment that are now gracing this sacred space of American freedom. And this is the first convening about the meaning of free speech under the tablet in this space across from Independence Hall, where the Constitution and the Declaration were written. And it's so meaningful to do it with you and with this extraordinary group of free speech heroes. Thank you. Let's begin, as always, by reciting together the National Constitution Center's mission statement. And I know you can do it by heart, and our friends uh, are, are listening, so let's do it clearly enough so that everyone can think about these words. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the U.S. Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. Beautiful, I knew you could do it. Friends, it's so meaningful and important to bring together people of different perspectives, liberal, conservative, and every other stripe imaginable, for thoughtful dialogue and debate about the meaning of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Leading up to 2026, the 250th birthday of America, we will spend uh, many convenings talking about American values embodied in the words of the Declaration, equality, liberty, inalienable rights, and the consent of the governed, and we'll also talk about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. The first in the freedoms enumerated in the Bill of Rights is, of course, freedom of conscience represented by the First Amendment. What Thomas Jefferson called the illimitable freedom of the human mind, the freedom to think as we will and to speak as we think, which the framers believed to be an unalienable right that we possess by nature of being human beings. Uh, We are created with these rights, uh, which come from God or nature. They cannot be alienated or surrendered to government, and the only just governments are those that secure these rights rather than threatening them. What we're going to do today is talk about the meaning of 
freedom of conscience in an international context. And by hearing the ways that it's threatened around the world, we will better understand and better be galvanized to defend it at home. So let me begin by saying how thrilled we are to present today's program with the Renew Democracy Initiatives, whose partnership is invaluable, and the Center for Constitutional Design at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, which is also just a wonderful friend. Uh, Uriel Epstein from Renew Democracy Initiative is here, as well as Carol McNamara of the Center for Constitutional Design at ASU. We're so grateful to them, and also to Stephanie Lindquist at ASU for making this great collaboration possible. And now I will introduce our extraordinary panelists, and then we'll jump right in. Gary Kasparov is chairman of the Renew Democracy Initiative, uh, both a former world chess champion and one of the world's great free speech heroes. He is the author of uh, books including Winter is Coming, Why Vladimir Putin and the Enemies of the Free World Must Be Stopped, and no one has called the attention of the free world to the urgent need to stop Putin more eloquently and powerfully than Gary Kasparov. Gary, it's an honor to welcome you back to the National Constitution Center. Uh, we're also honored to convene Ivan Maori Wire, who is Director of Education at the Renew Democracy Initiative, where he hosts RDI's Frontlines of Freedom podcast. He's the founder of the This Flag Citizen Movement in Zimbabwe, which was instrumental in unseating Robert Mugabe. He's also a Reagan Faskell Fellow at the National Endowment for Democracy, former fellow at Stanford Center for Democracy Development, and a 2020 Yale University World Fellow. Uh, Pastor Mawire, it's wonderful to welcome you here as well. And another uh, great free speech hero is Suzanne Nossel. She's chief executive at Penn America. She's author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. And she's also a great friend of the center. Uh, Suzanne, wonderful to have you back as well. Gary Kasparov, let's just begin with the question that's posed by that powerful title of your book, Why Vladimir Putin and the Enemies of the Free World Must Be Stopped. You are a heroic dissident whose speech was oppressed by Putin, and you're now watching Putin's threats to speech during his invasion of Ukraine. Why, among, among his many autocratic, illiberal, murderous tendencies, why is it that free speech is a special value we should be concerned about Putin attacking and tell us about the ways that he attacked your free speech and others? Well, <clears throat> thank you very much for uh, bringing us here. And uh, I can start saying that I was born and raised in the Soviet Union. So I knew uh, how life would look like without free speech. And, uh, and I saw um, throughout my uh, life uh, the periods where the free speech first didn't exist, then appeared, and then had disappeared again. And it reflected the political changes in Russia. So it's the, my life experience can tell you that free speech is not accidentally chosen as a first amendment, because that's always the first victim of would-be dictator. Um, the rise of um, uh, Russian democracy, very unfortunately very short rise of Russian democracy in the 90s under Boris Yeltsin, um, was due to the fact that we had free speech. We could criticize presidents. We had maybe not fair, but free elections. Uh, and Vladimir Putin taking over, he immediately recognized the free speech as the main obstacle on his uh, 
grandiose idea of rebuilding Soviet Russian empire. His first attack, technically a case. If we talk about first attack on the ground, that was a Chechen war and many other crimes committed by KGB, but institutionally, free media. In a couple of years, he dismantled the, the free media uh, entities that have been uh, built in Russia and, and flourished in the, in, the, in the 90s. Again, Russian democracy was feeble, was, institutions were too weak and nascent, but they did exist because we had free speech. So um, that's why when I saw the rise of Donald Trump in this country, so I immediately you know, just recognized the pattern and I wanted to share my experience. Never thought about me you know, sharing my experience from Russia here in America. Um, it's uh, to the inconceivable. Um, for many of us um, who were born and raised on the other side of Iron Curtain, we always looked at America as a beacon of hope. And, um, and I thought that you know, that was a time for me and my fellow dissidents to help America by sharing our, our experience. Uh, that's the, the moment the free speech is in danger. The moment there are other impediments, it's just to prevent people from expressing themselves, uh, you could be in, in, in great danger. And also, I wanted to, to communicate the message that you know, fighting democracy at home, defending democracy at home, cannot be um, a success without recognizing that uh, combating authoritarianism around the world, uh, guys like Vladimir Putin or others, and defending democracy at home, they're inseparable. And one cannot be successful without addressing the other issue. We live in a world that is global. And globalization means that things are connected. And for those who think that the war in Ukraine has nothing to do with freedom in America, no, you're wrong. It's, it's, it's not surprising that those who are challenging free speech in America, they are somehow, directly or indirectly, willing to assist Vladimir Putin's uh, clandestine global agenda. Such a powerful challenge to this audience. Defending free speech at home requires defending it abroad, and we will uh, delve into that crucial connection later. Uh, Pastor, you just gave a, a graduation address, I think, at Georgetown, where you said, how wonderful to be in a land where dissent is possible. Tell us about the context for that, in particular, the story of your remarkable arrest and repression and, and fighting back in Zimbabwe and what it can teach our audience. Well, thank you, Jeff. Um, a huge honor to be here with you and, and just kind of speak about this very important um, you know, aspect of uh, the U.S. Constitution, but really what uh, citizens of many countries are longing for and uh, for many of us go without uh, the ability to speak freely and to uh, challenge uh, you know, the status quo, especially the status quo as set by you know, the government of the day. Um, so I'm from Zimbabwe and um, we, I began a citizens movement pretty much by accident. Uh, Zimbabwe has been through multiple uh, collapses, both economically and socially. I'll give you a good example. In 20, uh, 2008, our economy crashed so badly that we ended up with a $100 trillion note as the largest banknote. And at the height of inflation, which was going at 286 million percent, that $100 trillion note was not enough to buy a loaf of bread. So this is a country that ended up in that situation because the government and people that were in government literally looted the country. So it became illegal to challenge the dictatorship concerning that collapse. My parents who were you know, in their late 60s had saved up a little bit as their retirement and had retired. 
And at the height of inflation, Jeff, uh, in seven days, they went from having about $80,000 in the bank to having 25 cents left in the bank. And to, again, to speak up about that was and still is illegal you know, in Zimbabwe. So we built a citizens movement over four years. I was arrested uh, eight times in a space of four years and was locked up in a maximum security prison uh, for that. But it is that experience for me when we stood up as ordinary people and gathered ourselves and looked at our constitution and found out that it gives us the right to challenge government. It was at that point that we became more emboldened to teach and to train other citizens how to speak truth to power. That still remains a, a crime. And so to see this inscription on the back, when I came here today, it's my first time here, I stood at the back there and read it about four times and just marveled at how intentionally in, you know, crafted it is to be able to empower the citizen of this country to participate in their governance and to hold those who are in power to, to account. Now, talking about um, what happened at Georgetown University two weeks ago, I was uh, humbled to speak at the commencement. And just before I spoke, the students um, who were graduating had just protested against one of the speakers who had spoken uh, at the event. It was a pretty awkward moment, as you can imagine, to then try and give an inspirational speech after you know, this kind of moment that has happened. Parents don't understand what's happening and students are also quite buzzed about what they've just done. And I got up there and I said, before I speak, I want to acknowledge the miracle of what has just happened here. Because where I come from, if students would have protested like that, two things would be certain. Number one, you would not graduate, and number two, you would be going not home, but straight to prison. And so I want to congratulate the students for protesting because they have done what a free nation allows to protest. But then equally, I turned to the university and said, I also want to thank the university that recognizes this right and respects it. Because where I come from, that would have been completely disallowed. And at the same time, the young lady who was protested against for speaking, I also said to her that I want to congratulate you for having the bravery to know that in a free society and a free nation, this is how democracy is, is dispensed. And that statement for me comes from the work I do at Renew Democracy Initiative, um, which is to bring our front lines of freedom dissidents together, the ones that Gary was talking about, we have over 120 democracy defenders and freedom fighters from around the world who are part of the front lines of freedom. Each of us uh, live in exile now mostly. They're journalists, they're lawyers, they're movement builders like myself who have stood up against different autocrats. And we, we try to speak to American audiences about, number one, what your democracy means to people like us is an example. We admire it. We see it and we long for it for where we come from. And so we also then try to, to, to get the citizens of this nation to understand why this democracy is invaluable to you with its cracks, because there is no democracy that does not have challenges. And we say, with its challenges, protect it. 
because there's few like this that are left across the world. So that's what we do with Frontlines of Freedom, is trying our best to almost, if I can use the word, break past partisan shields. We all have partisan shields, yes? And to try and say, hey, we get, we get it, what you're concerned about, but I want to let you know that what you have that you've had for so long is what we long to have. We fight for it. Therefore, we urge you not to lose it so that the citizens of the world still have something that they can look to to copy for their own regions back home. That is so inspiring to hear you talk so eloquently about being inspired by the text of the First Amendment itself and looking at it and reading it and holding it up, as you just said, as an inspiration to people who are fighting for freedom around the world. If I can, it's so meaningful to be talking about free speech in this space, across from where the First Amendment was drafted. And let us now, if you will, just gaze on Independence Hall and think about those people drafting the words of the First Amendment and fighting for freedom, protesting against the king, and then thinking of these words here and just feeling the light beaming between these two spaces to inspire ourselves for the rest of this discussion. It's such an honor to be in this space and to feel that light. Suzanne Nossel Penn has just issued a really important report about repression of writers and authors around the world. It's a daunting report, which in a granular way talks about the volume of repression and the different ways it's being exercised around the world, including with what you call the long arm of authoritarianism, where authoritarian regimes are chasing dissidents in free societies to try to further their oppression. Tell us about that report and what we can learn from it. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for having me. And it's great to be uh, part of this panel uh, and discussion about the connections between free speech here in the United States and around the world. Our report, we call it uh, the Freedom to Write Index. And we do an annual count uh, each year of the writers who are imprisoned around the world. This year, uh, in 2022, we counted 311. That's on top of another more than 500 writers around the world who may not be imprisoned, but they've been prosecuted or persecuted, uh, hounded in some way uh, over the last year because of the crime of expressing our, themselves. We saw the biggest spike in 2022 in Iran, not surprisingly. A lot of women writers, uh, writers who are talking about the protests, participating in the protests, uh, being rounded up and imprisoned. We just gave an award last week uh, to Nargis Mohammadi, who's a leading women's rights defender and dissident. She's spent her whole adult life in and out of prison. She has 16-year-old twins who she hasn't been able to touch uh, for, I think, seven years uh, and has only talked to uh, episodically uh, since they, they've become teenagers. And uh, her husband came to receive the award and just spoke about what it is like for those who are on the front lines, so courageous. She's organizing in prison, educating other women. She wrote a book about the horrors of solitary confinement. So she's taking every minute, uh, even under the most repressed conditions, to express herself, to break through, to challenge herself. She smuggled out a message to deliver to us on the occasion of this award. And, you know, people like that, you know, for us are inspiring. They're a reminder of why we do the work that we do. And we're seeing now around the world 
increasing protean and innovative tactics of repression, surveillance that can, unbeknownst to you, you don't have to click on anything or uh, open up anything. It can take over your phone and drain every message that you're sending, every website that you look uh, at, uh, and provide that to a security service. And that capability has been rolled out around the globe. The United States is now trying to rein it in. They can barely even rein it in you know, when it comes to uh, our own national security services. And so for those who are taking the risk of challenging these governments, that work has become much more dangerous. I think at the same time, you know, we are part of an international organization uh, known as PEN with centers in more than 100 countries around the world. And uh, the whole premise of it is the very kind of solidarity that Yvonne is talking about. It's the idea that writers who are free to express themselves have a kind of duty to use their voice to speak out on behalf of others and so that those who are in the most difficult and perilous situations know that at least they're not going to be alone, that they won't be forgotten, that if they take risks, uh, we will advocate on their behalf, we will demand their freedom, we will rally uh, writers and artists who have international profiles uh, and can make these names known and put pressure on governments to release them. And so that's the premise of our organization. But as the American branch of Penn, of course, we have a special responsibility when it comes to the defense of free speech in our own country. And I think you, Yvonne, very eloquently talked about just how important our own freedoms uh, and, and constitutional uh, values are here, not just because of the society that they enable for all of us, but also because of what they represent around the world. And so for us, it's become extremely important to take on what we see as new and intensifying threats to free speech in our own country. And we, we recognize a kind of unmooring of free speech on both the right and the left, and it takes on different forms. Uh, it can be informal censoriousness and outrage culture that takes certain topics of discussion almost off the table, because if you dare mention them, uh, you know, what you're going to get in response may be vilification, uh, threats, uh, intimidation, and it's affecting our college campuses, it's affecting the media, it's affecting uh, corporations, and they're pressing issues that we need, we need to be able to talk about as a society. We need to be able to talk about racial justice. We need to be able to talk about gender. Uh, we need to be able to talk about Israel-Palestine. We can't take these things off limits. On the other side, we see a really unprecedented pattern of book banning and legislated prohibitions on what can be taught and studied in American classrooms. And these are, you know, tactics. You know, when I came to Penn, I thought, gosh, organization still works on book bans. That seems so kind of old fashioned to me. I didn't realize anybody was banning books anywhere. It's now become uh, a, a, a pretty ferocious national trend where we've documented more than 4,000 books banned over the last year. And, you know, we, no ma even if you feel like something's are going wrong in classrooms or that uh, certain discussions have gone too far or, uh, you know, maybe we ought to pull back how we're treating certain issues. The resort to bans uh, and legislation, uh, you know, to me, if we look at what's behind us uh, on this plaque, cannot be 
the right answer. We need to be able to grapple with these difficult ideas and send our children the message that uh, books are not dangerous. They don't need to be afraid of books, uh, that their teachers and librarians and school administrators shouldn't be intimidated and that we, we need in order to cultivate a democratic citizenry, an atmosphere of openness uh, to all people, to all ideas, even those that are difficult and that may make us uncomfortable. So to me, there's a, a very powerful link between what we're trying to address here in our own country and the work we do around the world. Thank you so much for giving us a sense of Penn's work abroad and for, and for distinguishing between the threats to free speech at home ranging from illiberal censoriousness and cancellation on the left to book banning on the right. Gary Kasparov, give us a sense of the ways that free speech is threatened in authoritarian regimes like Russia and elsewhere. You talked about how Putin went after the free media to consolidate his power. It may seem obvious, but I think it's important for all of us to, to hear you talk about the, the ways that it's threatened, ranging from laws making it a crime to criticize the government to extra-legal murdering your opponents to informal self-censorship. Uh, help us understand the way that free speech is threatened. No, <clears throat> no free, free speech is not threatened in Russia. It's banned. <laughs> if you go in jail for a tweet for two years, or one of the recent cases, nine years for a Facebook post, and that's what we know, and we have thousands of political prisoners, many of them just in prison for expressing their views in social media, so there's no threat anymore. Uh, so <laughs> I heard from my Turkish friends a joke about uh, an inmate asking a book uh, in, a, in a prison library. And, the, and uh, the director says, no, we have no book, but we have an author. <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, it's very difficult here in America, sitting in this Great Hall, you know, we'll look at the building where the greatest foundation of democracy uh, has been built ever. And, and to imagine that there are many countries, actually 65% of people on this planet, they live in, and, and that's if you count India as a democracy, by the way, then still 65% of people on this planet, they don't, you know, have access to even f fraction of the freedoms that are available in, in, in the United States. Um, and freedom of speech is always the first victim, the first target of every would-be dictator. That's how it starts, whether it's Nazi Germany, whether it's Bolsheviks Russia, whether it's Putin's or China, anywhere. The moment you see an attack on the free speech, you know that's, that's what comes next. They start with the free speech, they start with the spread of information, and they end up with you know, putting people in jail for trying just to, to, to speak their mind. Um, uh, by the way, it's, it's, you know, I, I couldn't uh, miss this opportunity and just to extend the story that, uh, that my friend Ivan just uh, told you about uh, his uh, commencement speech uh, in um, Georgetown University. Uh, There's one important addition about the person who, um, uh, whose appearance uh, caused this protest. Uh, it's not a simple story, it's not a linear. Who, who was it? it she, was, she was daughter of Alexei Navalny. 
Dario Navalny. Oh. Oh. Alexei Navalny is arguably the most famous political prisoner now in the world. But many of his statements uh, um, regarding Russian imperial politics have been enraged uh, people li living in the former Soviet Republic, especially Ukrainians and, and those who lived in the Republic of Georgia. And the students from these two countries protested her appearance because of this very, say, diminishing comments about Crimea and about uh, Russian occupation of some parts of Georgia. Navalny said them years ago, and uh, there are indications he reversed his positions. But again, it's a free speech. So they made this protest uh, because they thought it would be inappropriate. And it's, it's a very, it's, the war in Ukraine actually put many uh, um, individuals and organizations in a very, it's, it's a slippery ground because you know that you have to protect the, the freedom of speech, but you also have to take into account emotions. Yeah, you, Pan America was recently, you know, uh, under the same, the same attack about not, about deciding not to have Russian, Russians on the panel with Ukrainians, which well, by the way, I support. Yeah, it yeah. was a little different in okay. that, we, I'll explain it since you bring it yeah. up. Um, so we had a situation uh, at PEN America, we do an annual World Voices Festival where we bring in writers from all over the world uh, in, to be in dialogue with American writers on a whole range of topics. And we, I had been in Ukraine uh, in, in December of last year, and I was talking to some of our, my colleagues at PEN Ukraine, which is an organization we've partnered with closely, and, and they were telling me about Russian authors, members of PEN Ukraine, who were fighting on the front lines. I thought, wow, it would be interesting to get them here to the United States to talk to people like a Phil Kai uh, or an Elliot Ackerman, American uh, soldier writers. So we arranged for that uh, and, and uh, planned an event. And they told us they couldn't be in an event with Russians in dialogue, which we knew. I mean, we had talked to Ukrainians enough to understand that this was not something they were prepared to do, but we had scheduled a separate event as part of the festival with a couple of, uh, a group of Russian exile journalists and a historian uh, that we had actually helped bring to the United States uh, when they were forced out of Russia uh, after the war. They came here as part of a project we're doing to archive Russian independent media as it becomes very vulnerable. In any case, so we had these two events planned as part of our festival, uh, but when the Ukrainians arrived in New York, they said, well, actually, what we meant is we can't be in a festival with any Russians, uh, that, you know, that is not possible for us. You know, if we try to go back to Ukraine as soldiers, we really could be in a very dangerous uh, situation. So we had a real dilemma uh, on our hands. It was very difficult because we wanted to give voice to all of these different perspectives uh, separately, and that was not possible. And in the end, the Russian writers uh, decided they would cancel their event, that they didn't want to go forward with their event. It was while we were still trying to problem solve. Uh, so they pulled out, and I think that did not feel great. Uh, and, you know, it didn't feel great for us either, but it was illustrative of just how free speech and dialogue can be compromised in these very difficult uh, circumstances. Um, powerful story. Thanks for, for telling it. Um, pa Pastor, uh, I, I, I think you were being uh, modest, but I think telling your story in some detail, what you were arrested for, what the consequences were, how after your release, Zimbabwe passed a further 
sedition law and what the situation is today would help our audience understand the threat? Well, when we, uh, you know, when I began the movement and, you know, I've always said that it, it you know, the journey chose me, I didn't choose it. Um, but, but, but at the same time, it had to choose someone because we'd lived in Zimbabwe without participating in our democracy for so long that we had become quite used to just sitting on the sidelines and doing nothing about what was happening in the country. And so, you know, we reached a point, and I believe we still are at that point where it has become necessary for, for people who are not in public office, who do not have any form of power except to be a citizen of that country to now show up and exercise the power that their constitution actually gives them. And so we, when we began this journey, the, the accusation for mobilizing citizens to, to, to ask for answers and to seek accountability and to look for a better way of governance, the accusation for doing that was that I was attempting to overthrow a constitutionally elected government. So I was charged with treason and I was facing 20 years in prison uh, for that. That charge was then multiplied three times, which meant that I was facing 80 years in prison uh, on subsequent uh, arrests. And like I said, the arrests and being held in incarceration um, you know, is not a, uh, it's not a luxury facility, as you might imagine in Zimbabwe. Uh, Chikurubi Maximum Prison is a, is a, is a horribly inhospitable uh, prison to be held in. And it was meeting some of the prisoners who spoke about wanting to be free, not just from the prison, and I'm talking about actual criminals, who spoke to me about the fact that they wanted their children whom they had left outside to live in a better country than they were in now. And that the way that they would contribute towards the struggle that people like myself and other citizens were fighting for was that they would look after me after torture sessions whilst I was in prison. And that moved me deeply, you have no idea. To, to, to see men who have no hope for freedom say, we want to play our part by making sure that you are stronger when you leave this prison than when you come in. Um, and so when I left that prison on one of the arrests, we continued the work because of that encouragement from these men I met in the prison. And one of the things that we did is that we inspired a protest which su surprisingly to us was able to mobilize 12 of the 14 million people in our country. Essentially, what we did is we shut the country down. We said that if we would not be allowed to speak truth to power or speak up, then what we will do is bring the entire country to silence ourselves. We chose one day that we would shut the country down, where we asked people not to go to work, not to take their children to school, not to go out on the street or go to the market or the supermarket, and essentially bring the entire country to a complete standstill, so that people understand what it means to have no freedom, that it is exactly the same as the way we have been living. And to our surprise, that succeeded beyond our wildest imaginations. And I'm talking here about nameless citizens, myself, people who, who nobody knew, who showed up and said, we need to do something about this. And so that journey continued. And by the end of 2017, believe it or not, we were part of a very large 
uh, protest that actually then demanded the resignation of Robert Mugabe. And we saw him step down. He was 93 years old when he stepped down. He had been in power for 38 years uh, and had rigged elections. He lost the election in 2008 and simply refused to go. So they counted the votes. They said, we lost the election, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay in power. So this is the extent to which, uh, to which we had been involved in, in Zimbabwe. And I, the excitement for me is that even with the new dictatorship that is in Zimbabwe, and that's such an unfortunate statement to have to say after all of that work, but even with the new dictatorship in Zimbabwe, what we have seen now is a much larger participation of citizens and people in Zimbabwe who step up, who speak truth to power, who want to exercise the rights, particularly the right to free speech that our constitution gives us, and who also want to tell the rest of the world about what is happening in Zimbabwe. What Suzanne was talking about, the solidarity earlier on, uh, I, I was saying to her, Pen America actually wrote in solidarity with one of uh, uh, our Zimbabwean citizens who is a major international uh, author. Uh, and she was arrested for speaking truth to power and they locked her in prison, charged her, and ended up convicting her. And Pen America wrote a statement to say that, you know, what, you, what has been done to her is wrong. So, so I think that's, that's been kind of the, the journey that we have, uh, the journey that we have walked. Um, and my last arrest was with the new dictatorship in 2019, when they began to destroy the country again. And I spoke up and said, this is wrong. We can't keep doing this to successive generations of people. I believe it or not, I ended up right back in that maximum security prison where I was in 2016. And, and at that point realized that this was no longer about just us doing uh, our part, but we have to raise another generation of people that understand the value of things like these and that they should not exist as inscriptions on walls or just as exhibitions in museums but that they must be activated and animated by citizens who care. Freedom is not a phrase, it's people in action. That's what freedom is. I'm moved to applaud because you so powerfully and in such an inspiring way articulate the reason that we must learn about these freedom so that we're inspired to defend them and so they live in our hearts and minds. Gary Kasparov, you said you want people to know about oppression abroad so they will defend freedom here in the U.S. and say more about how that works. Is it what the pastor just said about recognizing its value when you see it oppressed? Is it the danger of the slippery slope where if we don't object to incremental threats on free speech, we risk losing them, or why concretely is it important to learn about free speech oppression abroad? Recognizing of, of the value, it's a first step, but you have to act, you have to be engaged. And, uh, and that's something that people born and raised in the free environment, like here, always take for granted. Democracy, it was here all the time, so there's no threat, no, no, no. Every generation has a new challenge. And we're seeing it now in America. So the fundamental things like the you know, peaceful transit of power are now being in question. And um, just, you know, for a moment, going back to what, what the story with Penn and Russians, 
The problem with many Ukrainians, and as, as I speak as a Russian citizen, so and I know how painful the issue is, it's not that Russians oppose the war. Yeah, many, many Russians do not like the war, but it's not enough to recognize the value. It's about taking part in actively opposing it and saying it. As I say, you know, every Russian has to go through a simple test. You know, in five seconds, you have to say without stuttering, the war is criminal, regime is illegitimate, Crimea is Ukraine. Say it, and then you can be reinvited to the family of civilized nations. The problem with the Russians that have been attacked by these Ukrainians is that they belong to the silent majority of Russian intellectuals. That in theory they're against the war. They know Putin is a bad guy, but they don't want to say these magic words, including Crimea is Ukraine. And that's a problem. Same is here, same as elsewhere. It's about our engagement. Recognizing evil is not enough. Acting against evil, especially taking risk, personal risk, that's the story. And that's the story of evil. That's why it's so appealing. And that's the story of dozens and dozens of other dissidents. That's why we want to show this example. Because fighting for, for democracy just around the globe, from North Korea to Venezuela, from Belarus to Zimbabwe, it's quite different from fighting for democracy here. But, you know, you have so many opportunities to fight, and you often you hear, especially from young people. By the way, I see very, very few of them in this, in this <laughs> audience. Yeah. So, oh, what can we do? It's, just, it's, it's none of our business. We complain. What the heck are you talking about? You complain. You can do things. You can vote. People literally die for rights to vote. They just they believe that this is something sacred, that to sacrifice their lives. And here, how many people do not vote? Millions and millions and millions. So you always see, oh, this is this. The, the election has been decided by now by tens of thousands of votes in few states. Which means that, you know, you just have few, you know, just a couple of college campuses, you know, voting, and you can just shift it to another side. Uh, no, 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 it's just, it's too lazy. Lazy what? You know, just walk, you know, from your apartment and then just to, to, to the polling station. In many states, you can vote, you know, by just pushing the button on your computer. Again, people are literally willing to die for these rights. Definitely in my country. And in many other countries, in Zimbabwe. So I think it's this is the, this what style we have to communicate is that, again, it's you have personal responsibility to protect democracy, to and your rights for, for freedom of expression, and the rights that you inherited from your forebears, you are, your duty, your, it's, it's mandatory to secure these rights and to pass them on to the next generations. Wow, your duty in order to secure these rights, those words from the Declaration, and pass them on, we must actively defend them. Just to understand what, I'm, what you're asking of, our, of, of Americans and of, of people abroad, you and Pastor Mawir are, are heroes. You, you, threatened to give your lives for your principles. Are you saying that people in Russia, for example, today should be similarly heroic in, in standing up to the regime? Look, it's painful for me to recognize that Russia today is more likely than Nazi Germany of 1943-1944. Whatever you think about, you know, the war, you're just, you know, you're under the uh, oppressive machine that uh, makes any kind of protest virtually impossible. Unfortunately, before we go through our 1945 moment, the total destruction of Putin military machine in Ukraine, we will not see another window of opportunity in Russia to return our country to Euro-Atlantic geopolitical uh, space. Uh, again, it's tough to say, but 
uh, people, uh, the group, the groups I'm working with, the, the Russian, uh, um, my, my compatriots in exile, we always say that's, that's, that's our motto today is victory for Ukraine, freedom for Russia. Because without Ukrainian's victory and a full liberation of, of, of their country, including Crimea, without reparations being paid, and without war criminals brought to justice, there will be no chance for Russia. But also it will, it will send the wrong message to other dictators. Putin is half-joking. I always called him the, he is the, he is the chairman of the trade union of dictators. <laughs> um, but there are many others. And the outcome of the battle of, of, of Ukraine, of, of, of battle in Ukraine, the outcome of Ukraine war, will have tremendous impact across the globe, one way or another. It's, the, it's a never-ending battle between freedom and tyranny. And, and any, any concession, any concession to, to a dictator, uh, an aggressor, will be felt around the world because it will embolden dictators to look for opportunities to, to extend their power. And, to the, con and, and the, the, the opposite is also correct. The victory for Ukraine will send a message to all the dictators that their days are numbered. All of them will tremble. And that's why I believe that is my duty as a Russian patriot to help Ukraine winning the war. And, uh, and that's why we just, we trying whatever is humanly possible to lobby Americans and Europeans to make sure that all necessary weapons will be sent to Ukraine to help them winning this war, which is, again, it's, it's not just war to restore Ukrainian territorial integrity. It's a war to protect the world where the rule of law is, do is, is dominant. This is, it's, it prevents us from going back to the world where might was right. So uh, it's, it's war relief, and that's why I think that's beating Vladimir Putin and destroying his military machine and eventually uh, um, uh, dismantling his regime in Russia, it's opportunity not only for my country, but for the rest, for the rest of the um, unfree world to, uh, to, change, to, to, to change the direction. Yes. Um, lots of great questions from you and from our friends who are watching on Zoom and uh, Suzanne, many have to do with what we can learn from abroad about free speech at home. Uh, what cracks in the veneer do we see that are the harbingers of oppression of free speech? And concretely, because Penn both uh, studies oppression abroad and at home, and the free speech uh, cultures are so different, what are relevant uh, standards that you're focusing on. For example, the incitement standard um, can be used in illiberal regimes to ban any speech critical of the government as a form of incitement to violence, whereas in the US, of course, we define incitement as being intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. So what, what are some comparisons uh, in that regard? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, just to say briefly in response to Gary, I think in the case of these Russians, you know, that they were very firmly on record as far as their views. I actually don't think it was personal to their views. I think it, it, it was a categorical uh, view on the Ukrainian side that under these circumstances, and they were quite clear with us, it was not personal. They knew these Russians were dissidents uh, and independent journalists and uh, had been outspoken. 
But to, to turn to your question, yes, there are differences between how we protect free speech here in the United States and how it's done around the world. We have the most protective standard in our constitution. Uh, and incitement is an area where you really see the distinction. We have this very narrow definition of incitement where it's only uh, intentional incitement to imminent violence. Whereas around the world and in international law, uh, there is recognition of a broader conception of incitement. You can have things like incitement to discrimination or incitement to hatred. And the position that we take traditionally here in the United States is that that's dangerous because, well, really, what is incitement to discrimination? If you know, we're talking about the characteristics of a particular group uh, and there's something critical that said, could that be construed as incitement to hatred or discrimination? And if so, you know, then we can't talk about it anymore, that we, you know, we could be vulnerable if we even have that conversation. And we see instances where those broader provisions are used to shut down discussion, whether you know, it's on a topic like racial discrimination or uh, tensions between a minority group, uh, you know, in Europe, uh, issues that arise in relation to refugee populations, that even talking about those questions in some instances is construed as incitement to discrimination and hatred. And so the view, you know, from the United States is that, that that's overly restrictive. Uh, and I think it's an important peg to stand on. When I was in government serving in the Obama administration, we one of the things I was involved in, one of the initiatives was fending off an effort to ban the defamation of religion. So the idea that things like those famous Muslim cartoons that depicted the prophet Muhammad, uh, that those uh, were a form of incitement, uh, that they were hateful speech, and that they should be banned under international law. And it was a big debate between sort of the Western countries and the Islamic Conference. And one of the strongest arguments we had as the United States, they, they brought up, well, in, in much of Europe, Holocaust denial is banned. And so if you ban Holocaust denial in order to protect against uh, the, the, the stoking of hatred against Jews, why can't you ban the defamation of religion? Because that may stoke hatred against Muslims. And we were actually in a very strong position to be able to say here in our own country under the First Amendment, we don't ban Holocaust mm. denial. Mm. You know, we may refute it, we rebut it, we debate it, we don't embrace it, but we don't ban it. And so therefore we can't accept a ban on the defamation of religion. And over time, we actually made an overture to the Islamic countries to say, you know, we recognize what you're really concerned about is discriminatory attitudes and Islamophobia around the world. How about we come together around an affirmative agenda to do the kinds of things that we've seen in our own country and in other parts of the world that actually help to mitigate those attitudes and to foster tolerance, things like interfaith dialogue, prosecuting hate crimes, uh, elevating education uh, and encounters between people from different groups so that that hatred begins to dissipate and actually over time, it worked, and they abandoned their quest to seek out an international treaty banning the defamation of religion, and we were able to come together around this affirmative agenda, and that consensus has endured now for about 15 years. So to me, it sort of signifies that some of these very fundamental differences can be bridged, and also that freedom of expression is, is so universal. And, you know, we do work 
with young people at PEN America increasingly because we're so worried about free speech losing its grounding as an American value. And what we find is that when you tell people about these stories from around the world, people like Yvonne, people like Gary, what they went through, what they suffered, their bravery, their courage, their willingness to step out, young people are inspired. Free speech has its power, it has its hold. Uh, we shouldn't lose sight of that. We, we are not often educating people uh, young people, we're not exposing them. We've sort of pared back civics in favor of STEM. And we need to re-inject a dose of inspiration and excitement uh, and recognition of the power of the First Amendment and free speech. There are a series of questions about AI and free speech. Does AI threaten free expression, when can lies be punished uh, in AI? What limits can we put on free speech when the speech is totally based on lies? Uh, unless you want to jump in, Pastor, I'll say that tomorrow on the We the People podcast, we're going to record an episode on exactly this question with two great experts, Eugene Volokh and Larissa Lidsky, usually to punish lies. Uh, they have to both cause harm, like as in defamation, and also be intentional. But an AI can't have intent because an AI has no reason. And Mark Rotenberg, the head of the uh, great AI policy uh, think tank in Washington is here and has challenged me and others to ask whether we can or should protect speech that's based on machines without reason. It's just the mind reels when you think of standing in front of this tablet, a monument to the, to, to the shining power of reason and how it's being challenged by AI. Anyway, tomorrow on the We The People uh, podcast. I'll learn a lot and I'll be able to answer the question better after I learn from our experts. Um, you know, you mentioned AI, so how could I stay silent? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, yeah, just often, you know, uh, people are surprised that I'm just being the first knowledge worker who had his job threatened by a machine. <laughs> yes, turned to be um, uh, um, a great advocate for uh, human machine collaboration. And for those who are trying to scare us about these images of this dark future, machines domination, us being redundant, Terminator, Matrix, I always say that it's, AI is not a harbinger of utopia or dystopia. It's not uh, uh, a magic wand, but it's not a Terminator. It's a tool created up by us humans. And let's not forget a simple fact. We humans still have monopoly for evil. That's why the, the, when I hear stories about AI ethics, it's nonsense. AI ethics, it's based on patterns. And, and, and if we have ills in our society or in our history, it will look at these numbers and will come up with, you know, with, with results that reflect our weaknesses, our wrongdoings. It's like complaining about the mirror. You don't like what you see there? Okay, you can distort the mirror you can work on your body. Of course, the former is easier but it's not going to give you an objective picture. So that's why I think you know, we, should, we should just recognize this fact, and I agree with, with my friend Mark. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's talking about AI helping us and AI being ethical, it's shifting responsibilities. It's just... It... Mm. So, so powerful, we're, here, we're talking about conscience and we're talking about the capacity for evil and the capacity to choose good, and I, it just in this space, think of Jefferson saying, 
the illimitable freedom of the human mind uh, can tolerate any error as long as reason is free to combat it and to imagine a world where intelligence, the mimicry of intelligence has no reason, challenges the entire reasons for free, protecting free speech in the first place. Because if we're learning from this discussion about why we protect free speech abroad and at home, all of these uh, justifications are based on the power of reasoning minds to choose well or ill. And without that power, um, we have a totally different framework. Um, pa Pastor, um, lots of questions asking for inspiration, and you've been so inspiring about what we can do, both examples of great dissidents in history, what can we do uh, at home and abroad to protect free speech, and how is it possible to protect free speech in authoritarian countries? The questioner asks, how do you create a norm in free speech where what doesn't exist, for example, in India and abroad. So uh, give, give some wisdom to our audience. Well, you know, let me, let me give you a quick example from the past weekend with my children. We were having the conversation about hand-me-downs because we were about to have a hand-me-down moment. And, you know, nobody wants a hand-me-down. Everybody wants it brand new. And I said to, to one of my daughters, um, you get it from your sister and, and make it yours. You make it new for you, okay? And when you're talking about what do we do, what do we do, right? There's a generation that's coming after our generation that's gonna have to handle this democracy. So democracy is, is best handed down worn, not brand new. You've got to give your children a democracy that has scuff marks on it. There has to have been signs for a fight for it. That's the best democracy because it survived the fight, so it's a strong one. And, 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 then, and then when they get it, with those scuff marks, they make it new for themselves. We have a generation in this country that is watching the older generation wear democracy. And, and they're going to have to wear it after you. They're going to wear it their own way. So you've got to make sure that the way you wear it today is a way that they will follow and make it even better and make it new for themselves. And I love it. This is why at RDI we're called Renew Democracy Initiative. And I've got to give a shout out to our executive director, Uriel Epstein. I saw him somewhere over there. Uriel, just raise up your hand right over there at the back. If you've got any hard questions about RDI, don't talk to me. You can talk to Uriel <laughs> after we're done. But the, the idea behind Renew Democracy Initiative is to say to the current crop of citizens, we have an opportunity here to handle this democracy. As long as we don't break it and tear it, let's wear it. Let's use it. Let's, 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 let's have debates left and right and allow each other to have debates and still get up from our debates and say, I'm glad that you're my fellow citizen. I'm glad I have somebody I can have a robust debate with. And I'll, I'll end by saying this, Jeff, what has broken my heart the most in the United States, if you'll allow me to speak freely, and it chokes me up a little bit, is when I sit around dinner tables with families in, in New England and in Pennsylvania, and families break because they don't agree about the politics of the country. The fact that 
a generation of parents cannot look at their children and say, you see it differently from me, I see it differently from you. Sure glad that you're my son or you're my daughter and that you're going to carry this forward in your own special way. That, folks, is how you lose your nation. When we fail to hand down this democracy that was handed down to you, worn. Don't break it, wear it, and then hand it over so that they can make it new for themselves in their own, their own way. That's how this country will remain an inspiration for people like me and for many people who have never had a taste of, of freedom. Freedom is not something that we have. It's something we do. Friends, the pastor has said it so well. Freedom is not something we have, it's something we do. And the urgent importance of bringing together citizens of different perspectives so they can learn to disagree without being disagreeable, to open their minds to arguments on the other side, and exercising their freedom of conscience and speech can reason together to protect our democracy is something that we will do in this space in the coming years. It's, it's so marvelous to be here in the path of Independence Hall, and this is just the first of a series of discussions. The next is on September 13th, when we'll gather here for a national teach-in on the First Amendment to open the new Gallery of the First Amendment, which is going to open in the core at the beginning of September. It's the first intervention in our core exhibit since we opened. And there you will see sacred artifacts of freedom like Justice Brandeis's notes for his opinion in Whitney versus California or Mary Beth Tinker's armband or um, other crucial artifacts of freedom. It's going to be so exciting. We'll open it here and then we'll just continue to convene and debate and learn from each other. This has been an inspiring kickoff to this great series. So grateful to all of our panelists. Please join me in thanking them. This episode was produced by John Guerra, Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and me, Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team. Research was provided by Colin Thibault and Lana Ulrich. Check out our full lineup of exciting programs and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast, so stay tuned here as well. Or watch the videos. They're available in our media library at constitutioncenter.org slash media library. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.